You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. comes from Satan, not God. This is a dangerous sect, and I intend to eliminate it before it destroys our historic Jewish faith. This was Paul's mindset. He thought he was helping God out. He thought he was doing God a favor. Paul sat under the learning of the great Rabbi Gamaliel, but he was spiritual blind. He was spiritually blinded, and he didn't understand the Old Testament as it was written. He stumbled over one thing, the cross. His stumbling block was the cross. Even we are sometimes blinded by the thoughts of others, resulting in a bad decision and falling into the grip of sin. How can you be saved? Pastor Dave explains in today's message how Jesus intervenes in your life when you're about to make a bad decision. All you have to do is trust Him and ask Him to lead you. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 9 as he begins his message, The Hunter Becomes the Hunted. Acts chapter 9, we're going to read verses 1 through 9, and we're going to uh, look to see what the Lord has for us today. So turn there, please. Acts chapter 9, I'm going to read aloud, if you will read silently, please. Verse 1, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around from him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood motionless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there, he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. How many of you have ever read the short story, or the novel of the same name entitled The Most Dangerous Game. The Most Dangerous Game was published also as The Hounds of Zaroff, and it's a short story that was written by Richard Connell. It was published in Collier's Weekly on January 19th, 1924, which explains probably why a lot of you hadn't read it. The story was reinvented and changed when Gavin Lyall turned it into a novel in 1964. It's been the subject of no less than 19 movies since that time, and even has appeared as the main theme on many, many TV shows stretching all the way from The Simpsons to Star Trek, with Gilligan's Island in between. In this short story, 
a world-renowned big game hunter named Rainsford was traveling to South America for a hunt. And after he had this fascinating discussion about the hunter actually being the hunted, he fell off his yacht somewhere in the Caribbean Sea. He realized that he couldn't swim back to the yacht, so he noticed that there was an island not too far off, so he swam to the island. The island was called by the locals Ship Trap Island. When he gets there, he stumbles through the jungle, and he comes upon this very, very large compound. And in this compound, in the midst of this compound, is this palatial chateau. It appears out of nowhere, and he's fascinated by it. The residents of this chateau are two. Another world-renowned hunter, a general, a Russian general by the name of Zaroff, and his servant, who happens to be a very, very large deaf mute. Why do these guys always have these large servants? I don't know. General Zaroff tells Rainsford that he became bored of hunting, that it's no longer a challenge to him, so he moved to this deserted island to start his own game preserve. Now he is hunting a much more intelligent game. This new game makes hunting even more pleasurable because it's more challenging than anything he has ever hunted, smarter than anything he has ever hunted. When Rainsford is very, very curious about this new game, he inquires about it, Zaroff tells him this. He captures shipwrecked sailors and turns them loose on the island with supplies, with clothes, and a knife. Then he gives them a three-hour head start, and he, using his hounds, tracks them down, and he hunts them down just like he would a wild lion in Africa. If they elude him for three days, he sets them free. However... No one ever has eluded him. Rainsford is appalled at this. And when the general suggests that he join him the next day for the hunt that's scheduled, he declines. This infuriates the general. It makes him so angry that he then tells Rainsford that the plans for next morning's hunt have been changed. He, Rainsford, is now going to be the prey. He's going to be the one that they send out into the jungle with clothing, with supplies, and with a knife, and he's going to be the one that they hunt. I'll not tell you the end of the story because I don't want to spoil it. But what we have in this story is the great hunter now being the one who is hunted. The great hunter Rainsford is now being the one who is being hunted by General Zaroff. The hunter is now the prey. The tables have been turned. I call this message, the hunter becomes the hunted, because in today's scriptures, we have a very, very similar situation. However, it is indefinitely on a higher level, much higher level. We have Saul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus, the mighty Saul of Tarsus, the mighty Pharisee, who in the very first verse of chapter 8 was consenting to the death of Stephen. Remember, we said that the Greek word that used to describe his consentment was a feeling of gratification. It describes as one being pleased at what was happening. He was pleased at Stephen's death. He was gratified that he had something to do with the death of Stephen. And then in verse 3 of chapter 8, we read where he is wreaking havoc on the new church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. We saw that in Acts 8, verse 3. Saul describes himself as a religious zealot. 
In fact, if you look at Galatians 1 verse 14, it says, And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So Saul was a zealot for religion. He was a zealot for the traditions of man. And as chapter 9 opens, we again see him on this personal quest to rid the country of these rebels of the Jewish faith and rid the nation of this way. Let's read chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. There's a side note here that we need to think about. Long before the followers of Jesus Christ were called Christians, they were called as being part of the way. And that's pretty befitting because Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when you see the word the way, he's talking about Christians and the Christian movement, the new church. So here we have Saul, the brutal hunter, the fearless hunter. His goal was nothing short of total extermination of this way. Total extermination of the followers of Jesus Christ. And if we use the Bible as our um, commentary for scriptures, which is what I like to do, we can find much more about Paul and how he pursued this way if we look in other scriptures, specifically too. In Acts 22, verses 3 to 5, we see where Paul is now addressing this mob that is in Jerusalem, and he says, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel taught according to the strictness of our Father's law, and was zealous towards God, as you are today. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders, from whom I received also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring the chains, even those who were there, to Jerusalem to be punished. Give you an idea of Paul's zealousness. In Acts 26, we read again in verses 9 through 11. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did, I, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. It gives you an idea of this Saul of Tarsus mindset. He was a true, relentless hunter. He was true and he was good at what he did. He was a very zealous man. He actually thought that he was doing God a service by persecuting the new church. I mean, if you were to stop Saul on the road and you were to ask him why he's doing this, he probably would have looked at you and said, why? Jesus of Nazareth is dead. Do you really expect me to believe that a crucified nobody is a promised Messiah? According to our law, the law of Moses, anyone who's hung from a tree is cursed. You can find that in Deuteronomy 21, 23. Would God take a false prophet and make him Messiah? No. His followers are preaching that Jesus is both alive and doing miracles through them. But their power comes from Satan, not God. This is a real dangerous sect, and I intend to eliminate it before it destroys our historic Jewish faith. This was Paul's mindset. He thought he was helping God out. He thought he was doing God a favor. See, Paul sat under the learning of the great rabbi Gamaliel. 
but he was spiritual blind. He was spiritually blinded. And he didn't understand the Old Testament as it was written. He stumbled over one thing, the cross. His stumbling block was the cross. And he depended on his own righteousness and the law of his fathers. He didn't depend on the righteousness of God. And it's extremely interesting to me and quite poignant that much later, 30 years later in fact, when indeed he became the Apostle Paul, he wrote this thing to the Philippian church, I want to be found in him, that's Jesus Christ, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. He would later write that to the church of Philippi. This is very, very similar to what we had Jesus and Nicodemus talking about. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he had also, Nicodemus had all the learning of a Pharisee. He had all the training that a Pharisee should have. And in John 3, verse 10, Jesus says to him, Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? They were spiritually blinded. They had scales on their eyes that they couldn't see through. Jesus was obviously talking about the new birth in the Spirit, the born-again Spirit, when he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. They were spiritually blinded. Saul is spiritually blinded. But Saul's attitude, we read, and the words used to describe here, breathing, threats, and murder, remember we said they're describing an angry animal. They're describing an angry animal whose every breath was dangerous. And like many other religious leaders who believe that the law must be obeyed before the Messiah could come. See the difference? The law must be obeyed before the Messiah could come. Saul thought these people of the way were heretics. And they were preaching against the temple. They were preaching against the law. They were preaching against the traditions of their fathers. Sound familiar? That's what Stephen told them. That's exactly what Stephen told them in his speech right before he died of what they were doing. But this is what religion does. It causes people to become self-righteous. Religion causes people to become self-righteous. And self-righteousness makes a person boastful and proud. Religion can also call a person to become legalistic, which is the result of pride. This pride makes it impossible to reason with others who hold a different opinion or point of view. Have you ever tried to reason with some sort? And they're so stuck in religious traditions that you can't get through it and you can't argue with them. It's because they're a legalistic approach to life. And when they have this legalistic approach to life, they will commit all sorts of evil in the name of God or in the name of what I like to call religious rightness. You don't believe me? Look what happens in the name of religious rightness as opposed to the real kind of God righteousness. In the name of religious rightness, an abortion clinic is bombed or an abortion doctor is murdered. In the name of religious rightness, a Catholic Irishman shoots and kills a Protestant British soldier. In the name of religious rightness, a Muslim man loads 50 pounds of explosive onto his back, walks into a crowded bus station in Jerusalem, and detonates the bomb in a suicide mission. In the name of religious rightness, a radical leader from one country declares a religious war on another country. Saul was one of these religious rightness people. He felt so strongly about his religion rightness or his religious rightness that he thought it perfectly acceptable to kill and persecute others who didn't have the same opinion or didn't honor the same thing or who were a threat to his religion. Christianity is not a violent religion. 
You may find that hard to believe if you study the Crusades, or if you study other things in history. But what did Jesus say? They'll know you by the way you fight with each other. They'll know you by the way you give other guys black eyes who don't agree with me. No. They'll know you by the way you love one another. Christianity is not a violent religion. Christianity is a religion of grace. God's grace. God's unending grace. The Apostle Paul tells the church at Ephesus that our salvation is indeed a gift of God's grace. No man deserves to be saved, he says, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Salvation is a gift. It's a gift that God gives to those who would believe upon his son. Saul was a mighty hunter. He was relentless in his pursuit of this way. But the hunter was now being hunted. Saul was about to learn a lesson in righteousness. He was about to come in contact with the God of amazing grace. He was about to learn that sometimes a person has to lose his religion before he can really become righteous. Oh, but he was on a hunt. And he was hunting people of the way. He even had letters in his hand in order to capture them and return them to Jerusalem. Anybody believing in Jesus, he had the authority to kick down their doors, go in their homes, and drag them out. Remember, he enjoyed what he did. We look at verse 3 in chapter 9. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Evidently, many from the church, when it was persecuted and scattered, went to Damascus. And they settled there. And when they settled there, they did the same thing that Philip did in Samaria. Which is what? They took the gospel message with them. And they preached Jesus down in Damascus. So Saul got letters to the synagogues. And he went down there. Because this was now on his radar. It must have been on his radar because the gospel message must have been doing something great down there. They anticipate or predicted that there was anywhere from 30 to 40 synagogues down there. Now you're probably saying synagogues, why is that important? Well, the church hadn't split from Judaism yet. There has been no split from Judaism yet, so the church still met in the synagogue. The church is still met in the temple, in an area of the temple. It hasn't split yet. So Paul would go into the synagogue first. He would take these letters there. In fact, in James 2, 2, when James uses the word assembly, it's the same Greek word for synagogue. So the, the group was meeting in the synagogue. So as I said, our great hunter Paul now was being hunted. Saul the hunter was now the quarry. Unbeknownst to Saul, he has been radically pursued by who Thomas, Francis Thomas, called in his epic poem, The Hound of of heaven. The hound of heaven. Take some time and read that. It's a rather lengthy poem, but what a magnificent read. The hound of heaven. In this poem, Jesus is truly the ever-present, all-seeking hound of heaven. He can track us down whenever we're hiding. And on the trail, he sets his heart as a relentless zeal and undivided focus on the pursuit of us. He uses the same zeal and the same focus that led him to the cross when he's pursuing someone in the name of God, in the name of him. What did Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 23, 24? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? We go back to our study. We see Jesus closing in on his prey. Suddenly a brightest light that Saul had ever seen appears before him. He's amazed because he had never seen such a bright light and it appeared to be coming from all places, heaven. In the midst of this 
light, Saul finds himself on the ground. He finds himself on the ground. Now, everybody assumes he was riding a horse and he got knocked off his high horse, which we like to say, but it never says in scriptures that he was riding a horse. But he find, we finds himself on the ground. In verse 4 it says, he, Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Blinded by this light, Saul falls to the ground. He cannot see a thing at first. Can you imagine how frightening it must have been? But then all of a sudden he hears a voice, and the voice calls his name, Saul, Saul. And that would get my attention. I mean, it's one thing when your mom's mad at you and she uses your whole name to get your attention. But when she uses your whole name twice, you better come a-running. Saul, Saul. The Lord was trying to make a point. He was trying to get his attention, and he did. That would certainly get my attention. The voice suddenly asked this question, why are you persecuting me? Saul now confused. And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the voice comes back, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the people. Now, put yourself in Paul's place, Saul's place. Put yourself in his place. His mind must have gone kaboom. His mind must have exploded. Can you imagine? Wait a minute. Jesus? Are you saying Jesus? You're Jesus? But you're alive. Can you imagine what the reality was for this young Pharisee? Jesus was alive. Jesus, the one that we're talking about, two things to mention here. First of all, in verse 17 of Acts 9, and in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, we have an indication that Saul actually saw Jesus Christ. He actually saw the risen Lord. In fact, he uses this as part of his credentials to become an apostle later on, that he saw the risen Lord. So you can imagine what's going on in his mind. Everything in Saul's life that he was opposed to is now standing in front of him, talking to him. Jesus was truly alive. He saw it with his own eyes. And his mind was going, wait a minute. If I saw Jesus, and Jesus is alive, wait a minute. He's the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the anointed. Can you imagine what's going on in Paul's mind? Like, wow, this, I mean, his whole, everything he knew was different now. Everything in his life had turned upside down. Does that sound familiar? What happened when you got saved? Your life was turned upside down. Actually, it was turned right side up. But your whole life became anew. Your whole life became, you were confused. You didn't understand what was going on. And you are now this new person. So he said, Jesus is alive. That's the first thing going through his mind. Jesus is alive. And then the second thing, according to Jesus' words, he wasn't attacking the way. He wasn't attacking the followers. He wasn't attacking anybody except one person. Paul was attacking Jesus himself. I love that. I love that. He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Look at Jesus identifies with his saints. We are his body. We are the body of Christ. If they're attacking you, they're attacking him. You persecute one of them, you persecute me, Jesus is saying. What a wonderful truth. The beauty of the spiritual unity between Savior and saint. We are one together. They can't separate us. You are a sure. 
You've been listening to Pastor Dave on Assure Hope. Pastor Dave is working his way through the book of Acts. Did you know that the first martyr for Jesus was a great man of faith? His name was Stephen, and he was bold and courageous to proclaim the name of Jesus to others. He wasn't afraid to tell the truth, even when it cost him his life. What courage in the midst of opposition. Do you think you could do the same in this day and age? It's hard to stand up for Jesus when everyone around you is telling you you're intolerant, unloving, and just looking to put people down if you tell them they're doing something wrong. But what makes things right or wrong is firmly rooted in Scripture. It's God's Word that should direct morality, and Stephen was unafraid to go there. If you like this message and would like to catch up on any message you may have missed, head over to AssureHopeRadio.com. There you'll find many messages from the Book of Acts, as well as other series. If you find yourself in the Cape May, New Jersey area, stop in and see us. All the information you need is on our website, location, directions, and service times. And if you prefer to call, you can do that too. Our number is 609-884-5821. Once more, that's 609-884-5821. We'd be happy to answer any questions over the phone. Well, that's all we have time for today, but we've loved spending this time with you. We look forward to the next edition of A Sure Hope. Show.